This episode contains content that some viewers may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Dr. Charles Talbot, recording for Clear Minds, Inc., Outpatient Therapy Division, Internal Records. The date is July 11th, 2022. Update. Yesterday, the recorder broke halfway through the day. Dr. Lucian Donahue and I... Hello. However, did end up being rather productive. Well, after we calmed down a bit. The scope of this job, I... I've been on edge lately. Apology accepted. Thankfully, we didn't end up trying to transfer any transcriptions into audio form during that time. However, we did end up losing some other data that I wanted audio files of. Mainly, notes on patients, and more importantly, ones Dr. Olin referred to other therapists. My hope was to use this data to eventually discover which patients are still active and which aren't. It's worth noting that we got through a large section of loose papers and organized them as well. I'd say about another 20%. Donahue, that sound right to you? That seems correct, Charles. Which leads me to my next update. This office is on the second floor. Yesterday, I walked around to clear my head. In the process, I discovered a few things. First, it would appear that we are one of two active businesses on this entire floor, the only other being a private investigator's office. My second discovery is that the keys I was given seem to unlock all of the empty spaces not in use. I mean... Technically, I may have a key to that office as well, but I didn't check. To be fair, we didn't check all the doors either. It's a safe assumption, however, which begs the question, is this building, or in the very least this entire floor, under the control of Clear Minds? I doubt it. I've been thinking about that. I saw the numbers, and Clear Minds did not give enough funding for that. It may be possible that Dr. Olin is subleasing this entire floor. Really? Did he make enough for that? No. Then, how? My thoughts exactly, Donahue. Perhaps if the spaces were full, he could swing it. Or perhaps he was simply way overcharging this P.I.? Hmm. In either case, this provides us with an opportunity. Circling back to my earlier problem with losing audio files, this could help us in more ways than one. If we were to convert a small space or storage closet... We could get through this twice as fast. Two recordings at the same time, without worry about talking over each other, would be ideal. Yes, yes I agree. But aren't you the least bit curious, Charles? We only explored a fraction of the floor. There could be others with us. To what end? No idea. That is precisely the point. For all we know, there could be a coffee shop or a den of drug smugglers. Are you being serious right now, Donahue? Partly, yes. Don't forget, Dr. Olin kept an illegal firearm. If you want to explore, then you can, on your own time. For now, we have a job to do. Let's start with finding a second space for recording. Update. It took us a few hours, but we did end up finding a space. And for the most part, managed to have it set up. I still don't understand why you get the bigger office, and I must suffer with this box of a room. Don't be dramatic, Donahue. 
This space is more than adequate. Oh, but how will I ever manage, Charles? I've gotten so used to that gruff voice of yours. I don't have a gruff voice. Again, this room is for when we both need to do recordings. We still have plenty of days where that's not necessary. I really do need to redo what I lost yesterday. On the bright side, distance does make the heart grow fonder. Oh, fine. Have it your way. Oh, did you bring a recorder, by the way? I should have asked sooner. Recorder? Was I supposed to bring one? I'm joking. No need to scrunch up your face like that. Turn it in by the end of the day, Donahue. Right then. Charles said to be thorough, so... The space we found for this second recording room is little more than what seemed to be an old janitor's closet. The faint smell of chemicals still lingered when we found it. I see the logic behind this, but I think, in part, after yesterday, it's roughly 15 by 15 feet. A bit bigger than I'd expect. Shelving covers two of the four walls. One of those floor sink things is in the corner, probably used to fill mop buckets, if I had to guess. Next to that is another plastic sink about waist high. Near the door there is a personal locker, which is just big enough to hold a coat and perhaps a change of clothing. On the same wall, but on the other side of the doorway, is a corkboard. It had what seemed to be schedules and other maintenance notes attached to it. Lastly, there was a small desk in the center of the room. It seems to be made of cheap and thin metal. It has a single drawer, of which we did not have the key to. Suppose I shouldn't complain too much. At least we didn't have to drag one of the other desks in here. I would not have enjoyed that. The space is located about halfway between our office and the P.I.'s, so about a five-minute walk and around two corners. When we discovered this room, it was pretty bare. No containers of chemicals, save for a few empty bottles of bleach. Still, the place was covered in a thick layer of dust, and the floor was sticky in spots. After a brief search and failing to find another janitor's closet that was in working order, we had to make a run to the store for cleaning supplies. Only other thing to really note was an old tattered jumper in the locker. Navy blue, so likely a work uniform. The white and red name tag sewn into the fabric read, Greg. We, of course, threw it out. Doubt this Greg is going to return for it, and it's not really my color. Oh, I should also mention that we found one of those push carts in a different abandoned janitor's closet. We are going to use that to transfer things to and from the main office. In addition to this being a second recording room, we thought it would be wise to use this area to store things already sorted and audio previously logged. Good thing, too. I was not looking forward to hauling heavy boxes this far on multiple trips. Alright, I think I've procrastinated long enough. I'm pulling from the box labeled CM-X-0589-EC. Let's see here. Patient name, Harbor Warren. Transcript as follows. I've always had this talent. A gift, really. Never thought of it as a burden or a curse until recently. This ability is something that we should get out of the way. 
You said that I could talk about this in my own time and in my own words. So, all I ask is that you let me. There will be a point, maybe many, where you'll want to interrupt, where you'll want to ask questions or diagnose me or whatever. My talent is this. I can see attachments. Let me clarify. No matter what it is, if someone is even remotely emotionally attached to anything, I can see it. And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that I can just tell, or that I have really good observational skills. I mean, I literally see the attachment. It's... It's like a cord of dim light. When I look at a person, any person, they have strands of lights reaching out from them. Each cord is a slightly different color, and each color is a slightly different brightness. The stronger the connection, the brighter and more vibrant the cord is. It works in reverse, too. Some objects, ones that have a special significance to the owner, there it is, a strand. It started off weak and unfocused when I was younger. I grew up in the system. I lost my parents before I knew them and bounced from foster home to foster home. Back then, I would only see one, maybe two cords per person, and only vaguely. For a while, I didn't know what they were or what they meant. I was always an outsider in most of these homes, and I never saw a cord on myself, so I just thought that I couldn't see mine or whatever. But theirs I could see. These cords were attached to each person, and sometimes a random teddy or some toy. Even though I had no idea what they meant, I knew that I was not connected to them in the same way. Oh, but I'm not here to talk about how I've always known that few people actually cared about me, or how my childhood was sad or lonely, because honestly, it wasn't. None of that bothered me. I didn't mind, because who cares if they didn't feel the same way? What was important was how I cared for them. As I got older, I began to understand what these cords of light meant, and with that understanding, my ability got stronger. Slowly, I would start to see more cords. I didn't think I was just seeing new attachments forming. No, I think they were always there. I was just becoming more aware of them. The color aspect always interested me. Still does, if I'm being honest. It's wildly different per person. Like for one, a strong yellow could mean love, and in another, the same feeling could be blue. If those people loved each other, then the middle of that strand would blur together and become a green. I think we all have different definitions of emotions. Like, yeah, we all know what sad is. But my sad is going to be so much different than yours, right? I think that it's how we define our emotions that creates this color and the intensity of that emotion creates the brightness. I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not an empath or anything. Someone could be screaming at me, turning all red in the face, but that wouldn't change their chords. At least, not right away. So, like, okay. If a couple got into a huge argument, then their chord wouldn't change because of that one fight. But... If they kept having them, well, that glow might begin to soften over time, or the color might shift a little. After a while, that cord could just snap or turn into a different kind of connection altogether. None of this actually helps me tell you how a person feels in that moment. In sci-fi shows, they always talk about how complicated telepathy is. Like, 
they'll mention the difference between surface thoughts and subconscious ones. But you never really see that kind of depth with empaths. Partly because I think people ruined it. Too many crystal-carrying whack jobs out there claiming to be empaths and what have you. But it has to be just as complicated, right? Emotions, I mean. Like, we don't just feel one thing at a time. Just like thoughts, some emotions are right there, front and center. And some would be lingering in the background, quiet for the moment, but still there. Eh, that's my take anyway. I wouldn't know. I'm not an empath. I made the best of my ability. At first, I was selfish about it. Party tricks. I bet that I could find the most important item in a room to someone there. Sometimes it works, and other times they lied. Especially if it was embarrassing. An old friend of mine's favorite item was this keychain in her closet. It was tucked away in a shoebox all by itself. When I pulled my little trick and found it, she denied it. She pretended to not even know what it was or where she even got it. I didn't push. I got bolder, though. I heard about this million-dollar prize if you could prove the paranormal. I figured this counts, right? Yeah, well, it turns out that the challenge or program or whatever was terminated in, like, 2015. I have helped with a few missing persons cases. A little girl went missing, and I was able to find her by following the cords. I say cords because at some point they'd intertwine. They would have to, right? Like, a strand from her favorite stuffed animal and the bright orange from her mother would tie together. I even thought that I could become a detective, maybe specialize in missing persons cases? But it turns out when you have the local reputation of being a witch or psychic, that really hurts your chances of joining the force. And where I lived at the time, they weren't really all that willing to bring me on as a consultant. Surprisingly, there were a lot of missing persons in that area. The first few times I was thanked, praised even. Some religious weirdos attributed it to angels or whatever. After like your tenth find, however, well, things turned on me quickly. I was even investigated as the cause. Like, I kidnapped kids so I could be the hero, and it didn't take long for people to assume witchcraft after that. I made sure to get out of that town before it turned south. After all, it's not a far cry from witch to pyre. I moved to a big city. I thought surely it was better than a small town and has to be more open-minded about this kind of stuff. And you know what? I was right. Well, most days anyway. I even started the whole train to become a cop. I didn't finish. I didn't anticipate my ability would get stronger, but slowly, over time, it did. It's at a point now that looking at a person hurts my eyes. They have so many connections to so many things. A bunch of dim lights become the sun if you gather enough of them. People say that leaving a small town is hard. Like, they talk about it like it's quicksand, constantly pulling you down. The longer you stay in it, the more you struggle, and the more you become stuck. I think that's just places. Sure, it's way harder if you don't have money, I think, but it's how places are. Eventually, one grabs onto you, and leaving becomes harder and harder. But I needed an escape. Still do, if I'm being real with you. Camping. 
I had found my peace in camping. I don't think my ability works on animals. I'm pretty sure animals can form attachments. It would be silly if they couldn't. For instance, every time I saw a kid with their dog, or whatever, the cord would always be one solid color. To me, that says that I could see little Johnny felt attached to his dog, but I couldn't see if the dog was attached to Johnny. Out in the wild, though? Now that was my own slice of paradise. The sounds of nature, the fresh air, the smell of campfire, amazing. And, of course, no cords of light. Well, maybe the odd fellow camper or two. I can't tell you how great it is just to be able to experience the night. Hmm. Well, I suppose you kind of get it. In the city, there's always lights, sounds, and people. Well, imagine that, but also every person is a beacon. Nearly every object has ribbons of bright colors. It's very distracting. As my ability grew, so did the trips in the middle of nowhere. I found other ways to cope, of course. I became that girl who wore sunglasses inside. I know, pretty cringe. Eventually, I started seeing chords from myself, which threw me a loop. I may have not responded in what you would call a healthy way. I dreaded the day that looking at my own reflection was like staring into a spotlight, so I took steps. I've seen enough chords snap at this point to understand how to intentionally do it. Like, how to get to a place mentally where I no longer cared about that figurine that my first decent foster parent gave me. And so I did. I spent my free time learning to break ties and not care. I didn't end friendships or anything, though. A few strands of light I could get used to, and I knew completely cutting myself off from people wasn't healthy. I did start being super selective, though. To put it bluntly, I was a real... B-word to everyone who wasn't my friend. At that point, a quiet bar might as well have been a rave. So most of the time, I avoided them. Every so often, though, I couldn't wiggle my way out of it. I was dragged along to the light show. That's when I met him, and he is the reason that I ventured back into society to find you. Spoiler alert, I live in the middle of nowhere now. His name? Alan. Where to start with Alan? He was Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome. His eyes caught me first, I guess. Pools of amber that swirled like honey. A thick, dark beard covered his square-cut jaw. Alan was the type of guy that both seemed to take great care of his appearance and also not care at all how he looked. His shorter-on-the-sides hair shined. He was clearly no stranger to product. His beard was the perfect mixture of unkempt and styled. His flannel shirt pulled in the ripe areas, but his ripped jeans gave him a rough appeal. Now I'm not talking about those jeans that are designed to look ripped. No. He earned those tears. Also, side note, one of his arms was the size of my thighs, and <laughs> I'm a sucker for arms. So I was smitten immediately. Emotional connections I avoided. Physical ones, on the other hand. Well, a girl can have her fantasies, can't she? I stole glances at him throughout the night. Aside from his appearance, he was fascinating. He had very few cords, fewer than anyone else in the room. But the most intriguing part was how quickly he formed them, and then broke them. He would order a shot or a beer, and the moment it was placed before him, he became connected. 
A stream of purple light outstretched from him and latched on. Deep and bright, he'd finished the drink and the cord would be gone. It wasn't just alcohol either. When a song would come on that he clearly didn't know, judging from his offbeat dancing, instantly a cord would reach out and attach to the speakers. When the song was over, the cord would be too. It was like that with everything. Every person he talked to, danced with, pool game he played. No matter what he was doing, he would form attachments, and then he'd break them. I've never seen anything like it. To me, at that moment, I could only reason one thing. He was a man who truly had passion. Someone who could feel so strongly toward whatever was in front of him, but let it slip away when it wasn't. My glances became stares as the night went on. He noticed, of course. Well, eventually. When he did, boom. Just like that. Purple cord stretched across the bar and attached itself to me. Soon after, he approached. We talked for hours, and then, at some point, we moved our conversation out of the bar and onto the street. Then into my car, and into my home. Truth be told, not much conversation was had there. And so it went. We exchanged numbers, and he left in the morning. The cord fell away as soon as I closed the door after him. I guess to anyone else that would have bothered them, to know the guy you're crushing on felt nothing towards you when you were apart. But you see, I grew up seeing attachments everywhere and in such large concentration, so it was refreshing. It went like that for a few months. We would hang, talk, spend the night. Each time, he would instantly and vibrantly make a connection to me. And each time he would leave, that connection would fall away. And each time, the small dim strand that sprang from me would grow a little bit stronger. I was falling for him. A terrible idea, really. It wasn't like I didn't know what kind of guy he was. He never lied about who he was either, which only made that connection stronger. Eventually, we started dating. Well, to be honest, I started dating him. Sure, he agreed, but the cord always fell away. I'm not naive. I knew that he could have been seeing other people. He probably was. I had a fix, though, I thought. Camping. It was my little slice of heaven, and if I could just share it with him, his connection to me would stay. He only ever stayed a night, so I was sure he just needed more time around me for that strand to solidify. It wasn't like he didn't have any permanent cords, not a lot, but a few. So why couldn't I be one? Time. He just needed more time. So I invited him to one of my trips. He declined at first, he got real touchy about it too. But I can be pretty persistent. Eventually I got him to agree. A three-day camping trip, just him, me, and nature. I was so excited. I was going to show him all of my hidden spots, the cave behind that hill, the waterfall, which was basically little more than a babbling stream, and this really old tree that looked like something out of a book. It was going to be romantic and magical. I wanted to make time stop for us there. Maybe then, just maybe under those circumstances, his connection wouldn't end when our trip did. The day arrived, and I remember picking him up. 
I was confused. All of Alan's cords intertwined together and led into one of his backpacks. This, of course, took me by complete surprise. I struggled to understand what that meant in full. Did he have no family left? No favorite coffee shop? No close friend? About halfway through the drive, a thought hit me. Whatever items were in that backpack were the only ones he truly cared about in this entire world. And he chose to bring those along on our trip. I was giddy, and I took that as a sign that he wanted to make his connection more permanent as well. What could they be, I wonder? A baseball glove his father gave him? A photo of his grandmother? A silly trophy he'd won in middle school? My mind swirled. We arrived at my spot and set up camp. I took him to all the sites on the first day. Maybe a bit much, but I was equal parts excited and nervous. That night, we huddled by the campfire, just talking about everything and about nothing. My eyes kept wandering about the pack just outside the tent. The same pack that all his cords illuminated. Day two went well at first. We did the normal camping stuff, walks in nature, and other stuff like that. I kept waiting for him to open up, and maybe he'd open that pack he carried with him and show me something inside and... Tell me a story about how that toy race car was a gift from his favorite aunt. But he didn't. He began to grow more silent and more distant. I wasn't sure which made me more nervous. Because yes, the silence was odd, but the purple strand connecting to me only grew more intense in that time. That night he said very little. But not for the lack of me trying. He just stared into the fire, his mind elsewhere. His body became that of, like, stone. Hard, cold, and unmoving. We wrapped up the night and made plans to go for one more long walk before packing up and heading home. On the third day, we went for our walk. Halfway through, he needed to use the bathroom. Something about the babbling creek had that effect. He wandered off and behind a tree. My frustration was near a breaking point. He barely said a word to me that morning, and I didn't understand why. Was he mad at me? Did I say or do something wrong? And that's why I noticed it. He left his pack. There, it was leaned up against a large rock. My curiosity grew as I inched my way over to it, and I made sure to be looking back over my shoulder to make sure I was out of sight. I ended the buckle and loosed the strap that held it shut. I slowly opened it and peered inside. I followed the streams of light and plucked out the first item. A hammer. Then the second. Old, but thick rope. My heart began to beat fast. Then the third. A roll of duct tape. The fourth. Pliers. The fifth. A small bag, and inside was a pile of teeth. Human teeth. I stepped back, my mind trying to understand, trying to rationalize or excuse what was before me. The sound of a twig snapping. I turned and saw Alan. His amber eyes became slates of mud. That huge arm shot out so fast. I saw a brief flash of white, felt a sudden surge of pain, and the world went black. When the world blinked back into existence and slowly began to refocus, I struggled to make any sense of it. 
I was sitting on the ground, my back to a tree. My body was wrapped tightly to it, and the rope was digging into my skin. Tape was over my mouth, and I felt something warm and wet drip down the side of my face. Alan leaned against that large rock where his pack was. I tried to speak, which only came out as a muffled whimper. Panic not quite there, but it was starting to work its way through me like a worm. A few feet before me, laid out neatly on a white sheet, was a hammer, pliers, and a bag of teeth. Alan just stood there, silent, eyes locked on me. Panic reared its head finally, and with all that effort, I let it loose. I kicked, I struggled, I screamed, and I cried. All of no use. He just waited, like I was a toddler throwing a fit. The cord was so bright and so purple at this point, and that's when it hit me. That's when my mind cast itself backward to the night we met, and every night after. He connected to his beer, to a song, to conversations with strangers, to pizza we ordered, to shows we watched. All these things were just as bright, just as vibrant as his cord was now, and all of them ended. Consumed, stopped, cut off, devoured, credits rolled. He only felt attached to things that could have an ending, and right now, he was connected to me. Calmly, he made his way over and picked up the hammer. With his other hand, he peeled the tape away from my mouth. I began to scream, call out for help, and I begged him not to do what he was about to do. The hammer came down quickly onto my ankle, and just as swiftly. The tape sealed my mouth once more. I writhed in pain as I felt my ankle snap, and I heard the crack of my own bones. He just waited. He waited for my sobbing to stop, for the pain to become numb, as my mind pushed the white-hot feeling somewhere past me. He didn't speak, but his message was clear. Scream, make too much noise, and the hammer would strike. He removed the tape again, and I swallowed the urge to call for help. He nodded, pleased that I understood the rules of his game. I asked him why. He didn't answer. Hammer in one hand, he bent down and retrieved the pliers. I noticed how exactly I had been tied to the tree. My back was firmly tethered to it, but my hands were in front of me. They were bound together, with the palms facing inward. Slowly, he placed the pliers between them. Without saying a word, I knew what he wanted me to do, but I refused to believe it. He looked at me, his eyes flicking between the pliers and my mouth. He wanted me to pull out my own teeth. My refusal and pleas were met with the tape being reapplied and the swift judgment of the hammer on my other ankle. I dropped the pliers. He, calmly, placed them back into my hands. He waited for me to calm down and remove the tape. With shaking hands, I placed them in my mouth and pushed them deep inside. I took one last look at him, hoping he would have a change of heart. I was met with a smile so dark and so wide that I nearly vomited. I clamped down and pulled. The pain was indescribable until I felt that pop and gush of blood. He didn't bother trying to tape my mouth shut as I let out a scream and dropped the pliers to the forest floor. Once I had calmed down as much as I could, he approached. He picked up the tooth, placed it in the bag, 
and once again rested the pliers between my palms. The cord of light was even brighter now, blinding me. I closed my eyes. I sobbed, making sure to try and control my ragged breaths. My tears escaped my closed eyes and I realized what this meant. He wanted me to pull out all my teeth before he killed me. I was certain he was going to kill me. Anger rose above the pain and fear. Anger so deep and so strong, my eyes opened and rage contaminated my glare. I didn't care about the bright purple light. My own cord became a crimson red just as bright. It was in that state of misery and hatred that I decided he wasn't going to win. Even if he killed me, I was not going to let him get what he wanted. My mind surged outward, cutting like a knife, and in that instant, my malice sliced through his cord. I've seen them snap before, but this was different. This was violent, and that twisted feeling alone made my stomach turn. Alan's eyes went wide. A look of confusion spread across his face, and then one of horror. Like the sight before him no longer pleased him. Like my twisted and bloodied form inspired what it should have. I didn't stop my mind from hacking at the next cord, the hammer. He dropped it and stared at it for a moment before I moved on to the next one, the pliers. Although he didn't know how or why, somewhere deep down he understood what was happening and lunged for his only remaining connection, the bag of teeth. I was faster. I severed it. As soon as I did, he fell backwards. Fear now drenched his features. Finally, I cut my own cord that was connected to him. Now I have no idea what that does to a person, having all of their connections to the things they care about violently ripped away from them. But I can guess. He slumped over. His eyes became blank, and his body became stone once again, unmoving. It took me hours to free myself, and even longer to crawl over to my things. He had stripped them from me when he tied me up. My phone was missing from them. Looking back, he probably threw it into the creek. It was agony to even put on a single layer of clothes. In that entire time, he didn't move, not a single inch. So I left him there, and made the long journey back to camp. I know why I didn't take revenge on him. The cord was cut so I simply didn't care enough. Truth be told, I have no idea why I started to make my way back to camp. But that didn't matter in the end. Soon after that, I was found by a few hikers. I was rushed to the hospital. I don't know whatever became of Alan. I didn't tell the police the whole story, or any of it to be honest. I just told them I couldn't remember. The doctors backed me up. I clearly went through something traumatic, and sometimes the mind blocks things out to protect itself. The rest is a short story. I tried to go about my life, but was in a constant state of paranoia of others' attachments to me. I lived in constant fear that I would lash out at my friends and do to them what I did to Alan. So I left. Left the city, and people behind. Just another forever camper. A different forest, of course. But what I did do to Alan will always stay with me, even if he deserved it. This brings me back to why I'm here. A few weeks back, my power grew again. Turns out, animals do make connections, and I can see them now. It's getting so hard to just exist. 
Sometimes I get frustrated by the ribbons of light. And sometimes I cut a few just to make it more bearable. Lately. Lately, though? I catch myself smiling. No. Not smiling. Grinning. Yeah, that's more accurate. A wide, dark grin. I'm beginning to enjoy it. Well now, that is frightening. Charles would probably bark about post-traumatic stress or some such. Perhaps he would be right to as well. Still, to lose all connections so suddenly. It seems as if Dr. Olin attached a few things to this file. One is a picture of a young woman, around my age, late twenties. It seems Miss Harper Warren, I would guess. Except, there's a label on top that reads, Curlian. Anyway, in the photo, she is wrapped in different colors, and a few ribbons of light extend out of frame. There's also a news report. No indication by who, though. According to this, it would seem that Alan Stroker was found at some national park. Get this. He was found dead. Likely due to hypothermia, his body was discovered in a sitting position slumped over. Also recovered was a bag of teeth, rope, pliers, a hammer, and some women's clothing. Fascinating. I should get this recording to Charles and check in. See if he needs anything. Right. Uh, recording end. This episode was written and produced by Christopher George. Charles Talbot was voiced by Christopher George. Lucian Donahue was voiced by Dakota Hamlin. Script editing was done by Dalton Lewis. Thanks again to everyone who has listened to our show. You have no idea how much it means to us. If you wanted to help in a way that can help us keep the lights on, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thepatientfiles and enjoy some bonus content while you're there. If you're not able to contribute financially, we understand. But if you still want to help out, make sure to leave a review. And as always, stay safe, stay sane.